You are listening to the Outside the Boards podcast. I'm Daniel Leary. For most of my professional career, I have worked in mainstream sports for some of the world's leading sports organizations and properties and blue chip brands, helping to create award-winning omni-channel marketing campaigns, result-driven sales strategies, and impactful brand building initiatives. But all that work doesn't compare to the fun, excitement, and challenges I've been fortunate to experience working for the king of all sports, Polo. For nearly a decade, I've put my heart and ambition into helping advance the sport of polo. I've made lifelong friendships, met some incredible people, traveled to memorable polo destinations, and heard the craziest stories. My goal is to share these people, places, and stories with you and provide a unique behind-the-scenes perspective of the game that breaks all the common stereotypes, all while discussing key issues affecting the sport today and the constructive sharing of ideas, insights, solutions, and best case studies for the purpose of advancing polo globally. Every week, I will have honest conversations with polo industry leaders, enthusiasts, and awe-inspiring people who make this sport great and fun to be around. I hope through their knowledge and their unique perspectives, they will motivate and inspire you. Together, we will explore ways you can make small tweaks to boost your polo business, whether you are a club, event, team, or player that will amount to big changes in revenue, participation, attendance, and exposure. Saddle up. Welcome to Outside the Boards with me, Daniel Leary. Hi, everyone. Danny O'Leary here. Hope you are all well and staying safe and healthy during these uncertain times. It is November and we are about two weeks away from Thanksgiving and the United States is going through its second wave now of the COVID-19 pandemic. So for most of you, I'm sure this changes your holiday plans in a very big way. I'm super excited about my guests for this podcast episode, the beautiful and hella smart Pamela Flanagan. Pamela is a force in the world of polo. She is an incredible polo player who continues to get better having played all over the world and has won the 2019 U.S. Open Women's Polo Championship. You may have seen her on U.S. Polo ASSN's giant New York City's Times Square billboard as a model for the official clothing brand of the United States Polo Association. But where she is most well-known, in my opinion, is for her passion and advocacy for equine welfare and bringing attention to the inhumane treatment of kill pen ponies, a very difficult subject to discuss, but highly necessary. I am honored to call Pamela my friend. She is one of my favorite people in the world of polo. She is head-turning beautiful, both inside and out, and incredibly smart. Her heart and soul are truly in the right place, and I'm excited to see her continue to do great things for the sport. So let's get started, everyone. Enjoy. Well, Pamela, I really, really am excited about you coming on board with one of my first podcast interviews. So I'm really, really excited. You and I kind of go back a little bit. I think we first met before I came to Chicago Polo and that's when I was with the USPA and when you had started modeling for them. Yep. I forget. When did you graduate SMU? 2015. Okay. All right. So that makes sense. You were either still in college or just about getting out of college. And I think that live authentically campaign where they started to use more polo athletes yeah, uh, started mm-hmm. to come about. So I think we may have met at either a photo shoot or an intercollegiate event. I'm not really quite sure, but at some point we did. But but it's been a while, nonetheless. <laughs> good friends here within Chicago, and you're a fantastic ambassador to the sport. So, and not to mention everything that you do, both in women's polo as well as in equine welfare. So you are obviously the perfect person to come on board and be interviewed with. So I just want to kind of get into nitty gritty of it all. Now, you come from a relatively large family. What, how many brothers and sisters do you have? So I have four older brothers and one little sister. And the six of us are all within a year of each other. So six kids in seven years, we're big, crazy family, but we're all super close. Oh my gosh, I should have probably a podcast separately with your father about that. <laughs> Poor guy, yeah. Uh, well, no, I have four older sisters and we, I think, range between two and five years apart, but not a year apart from each other for six. That's crazy. So you get it. You get it. <laughs> I do. Except you have older brothers. Yeah. Not not very easy growing up as a girl with four older brothers, as you can imagine. But I couldn't imagine a boy growing up with four older sisters. I can only imagine the outfits you were put in over the years. 
Yeah, that, that's a separate discussion. Uh, <laughs> there's truth to that. Um, so you grew up in Barrington, is that right? Barrington, I did. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yep. So we were in Barrington. We were always back and forth between Barrington and Florida. My parents kind of always had a place in both areas. And we would oftentimes, when I was super young, I was born in Florida and I went to you know preschool and early years of elementary school in Florida in a little community called Ocean Reef. And as we got a little bit older, my parents realized that it wasn't really good for us to be living in this little bubble. The community is wonderful, but it really is just kind of a little island bubble. So we moved more permanently up to Barrington and would do holidays down in Florida and the rest of the year up in Barrington. So ever since I was little, we've always been back and forth, but it just kind of switched when I was about six or seven. When did you experience snow when you were six and seven? (laughs) You always got away before it fell in Chicago. I know. Well, when I was little, they still had their place in Chicago. So we'd come up here, actually. We'd come up north for Christmas, and then we'd go back down south after the holidays. So when I was really little, I got to see and experience Chicago a bit. But the switch came a little bit later. So now we do holidays down in Florida and the rest of the year in Chicago. And you got into riding horses at a very young age. I did. Yes. When I was maybe four or five years old. And that's because your mom liked horses. Is that kind of your your point of entry? Yeah. You know, she loved horses. My mom's born and raised in Greece and she's a big animal person and she always loved horses. She never really had the opportunity to experience horses or ride horses or have a horse. Coming from a village in Greece, it wasn't really something, you know, there wasn't exactly an equestrian facility down the street, but she was always around them. You know, people in the village would utilize horses for a lot of different things. So she always had a love for horses and her brother, my uncle, really loves horses as well. And they're a big part of Greek culture and Greek history. So I think that's part of it. But there was a little gas station down the street in Barrington, actually. And when we'd go up there, I remember it was the closest gas station to our house. So we'd stop there frequently. And right behind the gas station was a tiny little barn called Fox Creek Stables. And I'd always see people riding. And I remember being four or five years old thinking, oh my gosh, that looks so cool. So my mom, I convinced my mom to let me take riding lessons. And I was so little at that time. I would go twice a week and sit on this tiny little pony and some girl, I don't know who it was, but bless her heart to this day, I would show up and she would literally just walk me in a circle for an hour. And I thought it was the greatest thing ever. And I would look forward to every lesson every week. I think it was Tuesdays and Thursdays. So I did that for probably a year before I started kind of riding more independently and getting more into it. So... When you got a little bit more into it, was it just kind of your basic introductions, hunter, jumper, dressage, that kind of thing, or just kind of just trail riding whenever you got a chance? No, it was hunter, jumper. I mean, I was little, so I wasn't really doing anything competitive, but it was more of my mom could drop me off at the barn. There was a group of girls my age, and we would just spend all day there, you know, riding whatever we could. We would do little camps, we'd play games, sometimes we'd do trails, and then we'd have little schooling shows that we'd all kind of get our horses ready for. and and maybe travel down the street 10 miles and we'd think it was like a big event, you know? So it was definitely the hunter jumper circuit, but I say the word circuit lightly because it, we were really didn't do a lot of high level competition at that time. And were you the lone rider in your family? Yes, I was. My sister did ride a little bit and she is as brave as they come. She is not scared at all of horses. So you throw her on and And she just kicks them forward at a canter and takes off down the field like it's nothing. And she probably rides just a couple times a year. So she she does ride a little bit, but I would say I'm the only one who is this horse crazy. Mm -hmm. And then you took that on further and when you went to Culver Academies. Now, was that one of the big reasons why you went to Culver is because of their equestrian programs? Oh, the equestrian facility definitely had, had an impact on my decision. My dad went to a boarding school and he really thought that it was a wonderful experience and wanted us to go to boarding school as well. My mom was totally against it. So it was kind of, my parents decided they were going to let us choose whether or not we wanted to go. So my brothers all in the same year decided they wanted to go. So three boys left in one year and my mom was heartbroken. And secretly, I think she wanted me to decide to stay home. But as you can imagine, (laughs) I, I went there and I saw the stables and I heard that you could take riding as a class. And I was sold. So I went there definitely partly because of the horses, partly because my brothers were there and I just loved the school. And I still, to this day, love the school. Wow. The cruelty that you put <laughs> onto your mom. My Can gosh. You I know. I know. Holy cow. I have kind of the same conversation with my wife about my little boy, Finn, uh-huh. about going to camp 
during the summers? And it's an absolute no. She puts her foot down. No, right. it's not you're, you're not going to take my little boy away from me. He's not going to go away for that long period of time. But right. I know. There's some advantages to it. You know, come on. I did it for five years straight. So there's benefits to going to boarding schools and becoming independent like that and, and what have you. Now, when you were at Culver, did you... Well, and real quick, full disclosure, my mom was not that big of a pushover. All six of us <laughs> ended up going there. And while my sister and I were there, she was so done with her kids being gone. She drove into town without saying a word to my dad and bought a house right next to campus. Just a tiny little farmhouse, nothing special. And she was there like every other weekend. So my dad really got the tough end of the deal there. Yeah, I'll say. Maybe that's why like when, when I was up at a camp up, up in the Northwoods, I think that's maybe why so many parents bought cabins up there. That's exactly it. Yeah. You can be a little bit closer. Yeah. Now, when you were at Culver, was that the first time that you were drawn to polo? Yes. And it's so funny because that little stable I mentioned, Fox Creek, at one point they moved to a, a larger facility and I moved with them and they had polo there. So they had arena polo at Fox Creek when I was probably between eight and 12, 13 years old. So it was Fox Creek where I actually first saw polo, but it was Culver where I started to play. But while I was in Barrington at Fox Creek, I remember the arena would shut down at 5 p.m. on, I think it was like every Monday, Wednesday, Friday for polo people. And the girls and I, the barn girls and I, would always hang around and kind of watch and be awed by this sport. And I remember we'd hot walk the horses between chuckers for a dollar. So we'd hang around and walk the horses for a dollar. And, and that was really my first introduction to polo. And it was there that I really saw how wonderful of a community it was and how wonderful the people were and how much of an adrenaline rush it was. So when the opportunity to play came up at Culver, I jumped on that immediately. Now, when you saw polo at Fox Creek, were there any familiar faces that you now know today? So John Rosine was there. Greg Keller was there, who I saw recently at a, a tournament in Barrington Hills called the Rose Cup. Kelly was there. You know, there was a bunch of people there who at the time, I was only 10. I didn't really pay much attention to. I was more interested in the names of their horses than the names of the players. Mm -hmm. But now looking back and realizing all the people that were there, it's definitely, you know, a few of the same people and a lot of the same horses I've seen over the years, Martini and Annie and Mai Tai and Pebbles and Bam Bam. I remember all the horses, of course, and I've kind of followed them and, and seen where they've gone over the years. And it's been fun to see them in new hands and being loved on and retired now. Now, when you were at Culver, was Frank Stubblefield there? Was he coaching? So Frank wasn't my coach. My coach was Tom Goodspeed and Amy Weishart. Oh, that's right. All right. Yes, yes. Okay. So when I arrived at Culver, I was crazy about horses, as you can tell. And what I did was I signed up for every equestrian sport possible. So I, I joined the jumping team. I joined the equestrian team. I joined the polo team. I joined the rough riding team. I, every horse sport that they offered, I joined. And then my idea was I would narrow it down, you know, if I had to. So Bolo was the one that really stuck. And at the time, Tom Goodspeed was the head coach and Amy Weishart. She's married now. And I always call her Amy Weishart. And I don't remember what her, her new last name is. So my apologies. Amy was the women's coach. So I was able to learn from the two of them. I mean, I couldn't have asked for a better duo. They were fantastic. And then from Culver. You went on to SMU where they didn't have polo. Is that right? Or did they have an equestrian program? Yeah, they had an equestrian program, but not a polo program. And that really bothered me. I, I hated that I went to a school that didn't have a polo program that was so well suited for a polo program. You know, they already had an equestrian team. Obviously, it was Texas, very horse centric. Our logo is even the Mustangs, right? So I thought it appropriate to have a polo team. And I had a couple discussions with Tom Goodspeed about creating a team there and a fellow Culver graduate named Enrique Tuarte. He and Tom and I teamed up in, with Enrique's family to help kind of support us and guide us through the endeavor. The three of us kind of put our heads together and started what is now the SME Polo team. What did it take to create something like that? Because there's a lot of resources that need to go into creating any type of equestrian team, let alone polo. Sure. And honestly, we were in a very unique situation where we had a lot of support from Enrique and his family, and they were incredibly generous to help us get Tom on board and to help us get horses and to help us find facilities and manage it. So without them, there would be no SMU polo team. They were definitely 
essential in making that happen. And I kind of took the role of being the liaison between us and the school and trying to get the proper documents filed and getting the school on board and working through the various liability issues that we faced and, you know, working with other teams to kind of get a hold of what their bylaws looked like and, and how they had structured the team and how they had structured proposals to their schools and was able to gather all of that and help get different girls who were interested in horses involved in starting a women's team and kind of get new recruits to come over and play. So we all kind of had our various roles. And of course, Tom was the head of all of it, organizing with both of us. So it definitely took a lot of time and effort. But like I said, we were very lucky and in a unique situation to have the full support of Enrique and his family. How long did you get to play on the SMU team? We started it my sophomore year. And I played my sophomore year, my junior year, my senior year, and then also my first year of law school at SMU because I still had a year of eligibility. So I played mm-hmm. four years, three of which were in undergrad, and my last year was my first year of law school. Who was your biggest rival? Probably Texas A&M. They've always had a strong women and men's team, and they were close, so we played them often. Playing A&M was always a little exciting and intimidating at the same time. Was there a particular player that you enjoyed playing against at all? Yeah, you know, when I was there, the Massey girls were there, Stephanie and Amanda, and they were always fun to play against. And Chloe was there as well, and she was fun to play with and against. They've always been wonderful girls and wonderful players. They've just been tough. (laughs) (laughs) And you eventually graduated with your JD at Southern Methodist. Mm -hmm. And I understand that you chose SMU over Kent. Is that right? Yes. My dad loves to tell the story. He went to Chicago, Kent. My brother went to Chicago, Kent. My sister went to Chicago, Kent. It was kind of a a family thing. My dad's always been very involved in the school and and enjoyed the school. And in fact, I got a pretty much a full ride scholarship to Chicago, Kent law school. And when I told my dad I wasn't going to Chicago, Kent, despite the scholarship and despite his ties there, he was somewhat disappointed, (laughs) I would say. But for me, what was important was staying at SMU, seeing through the polo program, playing that last year with my team and kind of staying close to the team so that I could make sure I could see through what we had started. I'm sympathetic to your father, but I can see why you did that. I, as, <laughs> yeah. as a student athlete and not wanting to skip out early in what you've created and any, everything like that, you know, I, I applaud you for sticking at SMU, musting through and through. Exactly. And the polo team became my family. You know, Chloe Carabasi, who's on the team, is still, you know, my best friend, my closest friend. Tom is still a mentor to me, Tom Goodspeed. So it was a really wonderful experience and I wouldn't trade it for anything. Now, did you know that you always wanted to specialize in tax law coming out? I didn't. You know, my dad is an attorney and five of the six kids in our family are attorneys now. And his mentality was always if you don't know what exactly you want to do when you graduate college, go to law school because it opens a lot of doors without pigeonholing you into one thing. You know, if you're a doctor, you have to be a doctor because that's what a medical degree gets you. With a law- being a lawyer and having a law degree, you can go off and do different things and that law degree can benefit you in different ways. And that was always kind of his perspective. So a lot of us kind of ran with that idea and myself included. So I always went to law school knowing that I wanted to get a law degree and kind of have a higher level of education and work for a few years and see where it takes me. So I've been working now for a couple of years and we'll see, you know, I I enjoy it and I enjoy working with my family and it's been an incredible learning experience, but I still feel like there's a lot I can do with my law degree that is more aligned with my passions and the things I love and, you know, with the kill pen horses and potentially drafting various bits of law that could be enacted to help these horses and their situations. So you know, I haven't quite gone down that route yet, but it's definitely something that's been a priority for me to consider moving forward. I was going to get into that in regards to your profession and that crossing over into equine welfare. Mm-hmm. Is there an industry for attorneys when it comes to horses? I mean, what what is kind of the most common legal career, if you will, if, if that's the word to define it? It's actually funny you ask because a a friend of mine who's a fellow polo player and attorney named Lindsay Vance texted me maybe two nights ago asking about this and she's looking to maybe make a career change into that industry. But yes, there is. There's equine law. And a lot of times one of my best friends, her brother is an attorney in Lexington, Kentucky, and he does a lot of breeding contracts and horse sale contracts for the super expensive racehorses that go through Lexington and Louisville. And there's definitely an area of equine law that you can get into. 
it's not something that I've gotten into yet. It's definitely something I'm interested in. My whole idea was, you know, my dad started the law firm 50 years ago, and it's something that I really wanted to learn and understand and have input in. So I want to work there for a good amount of time. And then if it if the opportunity presents itself for me to make a shift, that's definitely kind of the route that I would look into more seriously. Now that I've established myself and kind of have a good understanding of how the firm works, and it sounds a little backwards, but being in a big family, I always want to be a part of that. And in order to do that, I had to work there and start from the bottom up and make coffee runs for a few a few years and scan files and do a lot of research and then work my way up to really understanding it from a more managing perspective before I could really make a shift like that. So it's definitely something I've considered. With your legal degree and your interest in equine welfare, what about politically? Is there things that you can leverage your degree that, let's say, federally or statewide that may not be doing right when it comes to equine welfare? Are there certain laws to be changed? Anything like that that could be leveraged? I don't know equine law well enough or what acts are in place when it comes to state. I know the Illinois Equine Act. That, that's really the extent of my knowledge. Sure. But I didn't know if there's any sort of larger cause out there that politics need to get involved in. No, for sure. So again, funny you mentioned that because last week I was uh, in contact with Jenny Alter, who is another polo player out of California. And she's a wonderful equine welfare advocate as well. And the two of us were talking about potentially working on an act together to help the conditions of horses and kill pens right now. There's an act out there called the SAFE Act, S-A-F-E, which looks to outlaw the transport of horses for slaughter. Because the way that it's kind of structured right now here in the U.S. is horse slaughter is not actually legal here in the U.S. for commercial purposes. So what ends up happening is these horses that end up in kill pens, these horses that are kind of discarded and forgotten about, are shipped to Mexico and Canada to be slaughtered and processed and sold. And for me, one of the issues with slaughter isn't necessarily slaughter itself. It's the way in which it's done. It's the transportation. It's the holding pens. It's the way that the horses suffer before kind of coming to this end. I'm not a vegetarian. I eat meat. But one thing I'm really conscious about is ensuring that these animals that are being utilized for this purpose are not being tortured prior to that. And it's been tough. You know, I always try to find local farms that we buy our meat from. We don't try to go to these huge processing plants and support that kind of industry. And I think it's the same with horses. I'm more concerned about the process in which these horses are tortured and traumatized prior to their demise. And that for me is something that I feel like we could really have a meaningful change in. And Jenny and I have discussed this at length before. Right now, because of the U.S. regulations, or lack thereof, these horses are held in these kill pens, which are essentially holding pens. So what happens is people all across the U.S. all the time are looking to get rid of their horses. And there isn't exactly a pound where you can surrender your horse like you could a dog or a cat. And so oftentimes they'll list them on Craigslist or give them away to a friend or a friend of a friend, or they'll send them through auction. And the horses sell for 20, 30, 200, 100, whatever, really low prices. And the people that are buying them at those prices are the kill buyers. So the kill buyers can gather up all of these unwanted horses from around the country and bring them to their holding pens, referred to as kill pens. Which are in the U.S. before they're oh, transported. Yeah. Okay. Because you can't slaughter here in the U.S. All right. Correct. Exactly. So they collect all these unwanted horses from various sources, whether it's an auction or Craigslist or Facebook. They put them in their holding pen and then trucks from either Mexico or Canada, depending on where the pen is. The ones in Texas typically go to Mexico. The ones in you know Minnesota, Colorado typically go to Canada. Um, these trucks show up and they load up their truck. They usually buy the horse by the pound and then they ship them off to the slaughterhouses in Mexico and Canada. And for me, from the research I've done, I found that the slaughterhouses and the holding areas in Mexico are really incredibly barbaric. So a lot of the horses I rescue come from those southern pens down in Texas or Louisiana. And it's really not a pleasant topic to discuss. <laughs> but in Mexico, they don't have necessarily the correct tools, maybe is a good word, to humanely euthanize horses. And they don't do it in the same quantity as they do with cattle. So a lot of the processing plants are not retrofitted for horses. They're retrofitted for cattle, which is a totally different animal. Mm -hmm. And in order to euthanize the horse, I guess is a kind way of putting it, in order to kill the horse and process it in a cost-effective 
way, they have incredibly brutal tactics and graphic content warning. (laughs) Sometimes they paralyze them with an ice pick above the withers and then cut them below the jaw to bleed out. And those are tactics that are really inexpensive. And by paralyzing the horse prior to processing them, it's a less dangerous way for the handlers to do it. And they just kind of chain up their feet, dangle them up in the air, and that's how they kind of meet their end. And on top of that, the actual way of putting them out in itself is barbaric, but the transportation as well is barbaric. They put little ponies with poles with draft horses, and they squeeze them all in a trailer and just kind of throw them in loose. And by the time they get to Mexico, a good number of these horses are trampled or, or dead. You know, they don't do a vet check before hauling the horse for 20 hours. <laughs> you know, the, no. the horse can go on with a broken leg and it's on a trailer for who knows how many hours with a broken leg, it goes down and that's it. So, you know, to get to your point of what kind of legislation could could we do that would be real and meaningful? Well, I don't think necessarily they're going to outlaw the transport of horses for slaughter because they would end up with a bunch of horses in the U.S. that they don't know what to do with if they can't slaughter them here and they can't transport them out. That's kind of the other side's argument. Well, what do we do with them at that point? You know, there are already so many mustangs and holding pens. Do we have to create other holding pens for these unwanted animals? So it kind of comes this this issue. But one thing in the meantime, I do think would be an issue that people couldn't argue with is bettering the conditions for these horses and these pens and bettering the conditions and regulations associated with transport and, and bettering the notification system for people who, if they found out their horses were in these pens, they would come to the rescue and save them. You know, some sort of requiring microchip scanning and reporting microchip numbers before horses are shipped. But God forbid if any of my horses that I sold ended up in a kill pen and I got a notification through an online database I was a part of that horse number 1152 showed up in a kill pen. My gosh, I mean, you know, and I think a lot of people feel the same. I would be there in a heartbeat. I'd send a trailer and pick them up, get them help, get them home. I feel like a lot of people feel that same way, but how would they ever know? You know, especially with polo, you have so many horses and it's like a revolving door at the high level. You're getting new horses in and old horses out. It's impossible to track where they all go, or at least it's difficult. So I think ensuring that there was some kind of reporting system within these kill pens prior to transport that would notify an owner. If you lose your pet, it goes to the vet, they scan it, they call you. Some sort of reporting system like that I think is essential in bettering the conditions, ensuring that there's clean food and water and having fines if there isn't, being open to inspection, which a lot of them, which I've tried, by the way, I've tried to go and inspect them myself. And some let me in, some didn't. Allowing inspection, ensuring clean food and water, having these kind of systems in place where you can identify and contact previous owners, or at least notify through some online software program. These are all things that I think would be really incredibly helpful in this industry until we can find a solution, a bigger, broader solution. This podcast episode is presented by Global Polo TV. The world's premier destination for video on-demand polo content has arrived. Now you can watch the nation's best live and archive tournament matches and compelling behind-the-scenes content from anywhere, at any time, and on any digital device. Global Polo TV has over 9,000 subscribers, 200 plus hours of live broadcast of games, and over 500 hours of produced content from weekly shows to in-depth features. Sign up today. All on-demand polo games and content are free. Want to watch official USPA games live? Then get your polo pass today by visiting globalpolo.com so as not to miss this year's high goal season and upcoming 2021 Gauntlet of Polo. Welcome to Global Polo TV. Through your research, how many horses from the United States are slaughtered? Did you have an idea of her number? Yeah. And, you know, there are varying reports with varying numbers and it changes year to year based on oftentimes the economy, frankly, which makes sense, right? If the economy is not in good shape, people can't hold on to their horses and they kind of let them go for cheap and that's where they end up. But I've seen numbers from anywhere from 50 to 100,000 horses a year are shipped over the border for the purpose of slaughter. Do you think that majority of the horses are coming from the U.S. to be slaughtered? And what are they being slaughtered for? So the U.S. horses that are being slaughtered are oftentimes being slaughtered for a variety of products like dog food, maybe, in Mexico. Or in Canada, for example, they ship a lot of horses to Japan for, actually, it's a terrible thing called foal sushi. So it's like a baby horse. It's kind of like veal almost, but it's baby horse. Repeat that name again. Foal. Foal sushi, like a baby horse, a foal, yeah. 
but they ship a lot of horses to Japan for, and a lot to Europe because a lot of people there consume horse. So a lot of the horses from Canada go to Europe and a lot of the horses in Mexico are slaughtered in Mexico because from what I've understood is the Mexico slaughterhouses don't meet the regulatory standards for the European buyers because they are so barbaric and so disgusting. They actually can't export their meat. So the horses going to Mexico are slaughtered there for a low-cost meat option or for dog food, cat food, etc. Do you think percentage-wise most of them are coming from the U.S.? Oh, certainly. The number I gave you, the value, the 50 to 100 a year, those are all U.S. horses that are being exported for the purpose of slaughter. Mm -hmm. So yes, all of those are U.S. horses. You know, I don't know how many are slaughtered in Mexico annually. The only number that I've come across in my research are the number that have been exported from the U.S. to Mexico or Canada for the purpose of slaughter, which is the 50 to 100 number. That's incredible. That is crazy. It's one of those things where the U.S. is kind of feeding a system. The horses here are essentially just, it's, it's kind of a drug cartel in a way, you know, we're manufacturing the horses only to give them to people to slaughter them for other industries. Exactly. It's, it's just awful to hear about it. Oh, it is. And it's a terrible topic to discuss. And the other side of the coin, the other argument that people have is that there is a preference for some people to reopen slaughterhouses in the U.S., not because they hate horses and want to see them killed, but because they feel that opening slaughterhouses in the U.S. would allow for the U.S. to have certain regulations in place so you'd have more control over how the horses are actually processed, which you don't have when you're crossing borders and shipping them internationally. So there are good arguments on both sides, and I don't take a stand on either of those. My focus right now is more of a meaningful change in the process while we find a bigger solution to kind mm -hmm. of help these animals in need. And one of the big things I've done to help in my mind is bring awareness to it, get people talking about it, mm -hmm. taking horses myself and turning them into polo horses, showing people it's possible. That's kind of been my first step in this. And the next step, I think, is to have some sort of act drafted that can really help these horses in a meaningful way in a broader scale. And to your point, there's not really a pound per se where you can give your horse and it'll be taken care of properly until the end of its life. That rarely exists in the U.S. I've got to assume that there's few, but... Yeah, there are a few, but not to that extent. I don't believe that there would be room for 100,000 horses a year, let's call it, or 50,000 a year. You know, a lot of the thoroughbred programs, they have aftercare programs there are rescues that will help if you contact them, but oftentimes they're at capacity. It's not going to be easy to place 50,000 horses in need of a home. Horses are expensive. So definitely there are resources. If you have to get rid of your horse for whatever reason, my first step would be to find it a good home or contact a rescue. Find it a reliable home. Don't give it to some, quote, cowboy who needs a, a horse for their daughter. That mm -hmm. chances are that may not be the best outlet unless you actually know this person personally. But definitely finding a rescue, that they're, they're out there. They're mm. definitely out there. You just have to look. The horses that end up in kill pens, do you know where they're coming from? Are they coming from a specific industry? They come from everywhere. To answer your question, they can be ex-race horses. A lot of quarter horses go through. Polo ponies can mm. show up. And it doesn't necessarily mean the owner or trainer of that racehorse sent it to a kill pen or the owner or trainer of that polo pony sent it to a kill pen. Oftentimes it just kind of gets stuck in this pipeline where it goes from an owner trainer to a good home who can no longer keep it for whatever reason. So they give it to a friend who maybe collects horses or has a farm mm -hmm. and then that friend can't feed him and they send him through an auction and the horse only sells for a hundred bucks at the auction and boom, you know, those horses selling for a hundred bucks are going to end up in a kill pen. So oftentimes it's not directly the owner or trainer's fault. They don't know, or maybe they lost track. You know, it's not just one person necessarily to blame most of the time. Mm -hmm. These horses just kind of slowly but surely follow down this pipeline and end up in the wrong place at the wrong time. And it wouldn't be fair to blame one industry over the other. I think it's yeah. every industry is guilty of this to some degree. Mm-hmm. What about even controlling auction houses? It seems as though that's where people go and that's, and you don't know who's buying these horses at the end of the day. I mean, are they supposed to disclose who they are and what the purpose and what the use of the horse will ultimately be? You know, they don't. And the thing with auction houses is they like the kill buyers, right? Because the kill buyers are the ones buying up all these horses that nobody else wants. 
when you go to an auction and there are a hundred horses there, maybe, you know, 20 of them will sell for a thousand, 1200, $1,500, but then you're going to have maybe 30 horses at the end that one's a little old, one's a little broken, one's untrained, one lost an eye. Who's going to buy those horses? Well, the kill buyer is going to buy them. Nobody else is going to buy 30 broken horses. So the kill buyers are kind of that cleanup crew that come through and take whatever's left. Oh my gosh. I feel like let's stop there and that's it. <laughs> the <Yeah>. conversation. <laughs> the good news is I've pulled a couple and they've turned out to be lovely horses. Yeah, so. no, exactly. And Stella and what is the other one, Nora? I've got Stella who came from a pen and I have Sunny who came from a pen and Coconut came from a pen. Charlie came from a pen. Bandit, a lot of these horses. Might I also mention, there's one more thing about kill pens. I don't want people to think, go to a kill pen and buy a horse because you're rescuing it. There is an argument against purchasing horses from kill pens. And it's as follows. A lot of times these kill buyers will go to auctions, buy a horse for a hundred bucks or 200 bucks. The horses typically sell to slaughter for 50 cents a pound. So a thousand pound horse will typically sell to slaughter for 500 bucks. What these kill buyers oftentimes do is they'll go buy a horse at auction for a hundred or $200, post it online and say, you must buy this horse in the, in the next five days. Otherwise it's shipping to slaughter. The horse is priced at $2,000. Well, the kill buyers know darn well that $2,000 is way overpriced Mm -hmm. for a horse that they think is going to go to slaughter. But they're going to pull on your heartstrings and make you feel guilty. Exactly. And if a horse is going to sell and they think it has value to sell at that number because it's sound and trained and young and all of this, they're not going to sell it to slaughter. That horse is going to be run back through auction Mm -hmm. where they can get a couple hundred bucks for it more than what they spend. It bothers me a lot of times where there's a $3,000 horse in a kill pen and people think it's going to go to slaughter the next day if they don't buy it. I'd hate to be the person that says, don't buy it. And then the horse goes and ships, but there is definitely the high likelihood that that kill buyer is looking to line their pockets and not necessarily looking to find that horse a good home. It's unlikely that a $3,000 kill pen horse is going to go to slaughter. That horse is probably going to run back through auction. That being said, when you come across a kill pen horse, that's four or five, $600. That's the price that the Mexico slaughterhouses are buying. So if you don't buy it, they will. Mm-hmm. So there's definitely that kind of nuance that you have to understand when looking at these kill pens is, mm-hmm. is this going to align their pockets or is this a value that's really going to sell to slaughter? So unfortunately, because the industry's grown the way it has with these kill pens advertising and pulling on your heartstrings online, they've really upped those values a lot. So it's just something to be conscientious of. And now because it's become such a fad, I recommend first going to a rescue before a kill pen. Adopt from a rescue where the horse has been vetted. So walk us through the story then of how you obtained Stella and your rescue ponies. So I had just graduated from law school and I was living in Chicago and I I wanted to keep being involved in horses and playing polo and obviously just starting a career. I, I couldn't just go out and buy a string of ponies. So I thought I'll get a really cheap little project horse and I'll make it myself. Why not? It'll be a good experience. So I was looking online and I came across Stella, this little polka dotted pony who was kind of skinny, kind of underweight, but she was only three and she looked really sweet. So I contacted the number on the ad and I inquired more about her. And basically they said, I asked them, I think it was, what's her price? And he said, well, she's about 850 pounds. So we'd probably sell her for 500. And I thought, well, you know, I've talked to a lot of owners and trainers in my life. I've never had them value a horse based on their weight. So I inquired further and, and it finally came out in the conversation that, you know, he was a kill buyer selling horses to slaughter. And he was actually very nice to me and gave me a lot of detail about the horse. And he basically said, well, do you want her or not? Because we're leaving on Monday. And I thought, yes, I want her. He was like, all right, PayPal this address and she's yours. So without really thinking or doing much more, I PayPal that address and I really wasn't educated on this at all. So I made the terrible mistake of he said, do you want me to ship her for you to Texas? She was in Louisiana. And I had friends with a farm in Texas where I could keep her. And I said, yeah, sure, that'd be great. So I'll pay you extra for the shipping and all that. So oh, I can't believe to this day I did this. This poor horse had to get on that trailer with all those horses going to slaughter. And he dropped her off in Texas at my friend's ranch and all the other ones, you know, they closed up the trailer door and went to Mexico. But now that I've learned more about it, I would never ship my horse with that load of horses. The way in which they handle them or ship them is just barbaric. But that's kind of how I came across Stella. I knew nothing about her. I hadn't met her. A friend of mine, Finn Stubbs, just said, yeah, sure, drop her at my place. That's fine. So we had a paddock where we just kind of, I sent her to quarantine first and she was quarantined a few weeks. And then I had a separate paddock away from other horses at Finn's place where I kept her for a few more weeks before I 
was able to fly down there and get my hands on her and work with her a little bit. And did you or who trained her and ultimately turned her into a polo pony? She passed through a lot of hands. I can't take full credit for that. I went down to Texas to try her, realized she was broke. She had had a saddle on. She accepted a bridle. So that was a good start. And, you know, before bringing her up to Chicago, there was a cowboy down in Texas who I know very well named Joshua Hill. And he is a wonderful horseman and he does a lot of colt starting and he's just really gentle with the horses. So I contacted Joshua and had him put the first 30 days on her before shipping her up north just because I didn't want to kill myself on my first project. (laughs) So (laughs) I sent her to Joshua. He put, I think it was a little more than 30 days, maybe 45 days or so on Stella and Nala, another one I had at the time and kind of got them started, verified that they were both safe and not going to kill me and then shipped them up to Chicago in, I want to say March of 2017. And I shipped them up to Chicago to Aranmore, actually, and had them there. And then I worked with them all summer. And I had people there who would take them on sets and kind of just get them out and exercised and used to the kind of polo pony regiment. Oh, they were at Font Farms, actually, before Aranmore. And Todd Rackley was one of those people. And he would put rides on them and do sets when I couldn't get out there because it was about an hour and a half drive for me from the office every day. Mm-hmm. And then I, I ended up playing them later that summer in one of the women's tournaments in Chicago. And it was, you know, their first match ever, which was fun and interesting. But, you know, it was a really proud moment for me to have them get to that point. And they played great. Oh, yeah, they played great. You know, it was a little spooky because the Chicago matches can be really great because they have so many tents and fans and people and yeah. and performances, which is amazing and, and unique. The green horses, I was really impressed with how they handled all of it. I thought they did really well. That's really great. Yeah. And then fast forward to 2019, I played Stella in the Women's US Open, which was a really neat experience. And you won, right? We did. Mm -hmm. Yeah. That's exciting. That's exciting. That's a fantastic story. So you've obviously taken on more horses other than your first two. I think I read somewhere where you have six now or you've rescued six. Yeah, I've rescued six or seven or eight, something along those lines from different situations. I've rescued a couple of them and found new homes. I recently just rehomed one of my favorite rescues, Charlie, a little paint mare I got from a pen in July of 2017 to an incredible woman here in the Denver area who wants to use her as a trail horse. Another one, Bandit, he actually, he went to a quarantine facility for a while and the lady from the facility called me and said, is there any way I could keep him? He's kind of a seeing eye dog for a bunch of my blind mini horses that are here. They all kind of took to him and he's this super sweet gelding and they follow him around and if it's okay with you, we'll keep him here. I said, sure. Mm -hmm. So everyone has kind of a different success story. And my most recent one that's kind of up and coming is Sunny, this little Palomino quarter horse who is just a little phenom. She's going to be an amazing, amazing polo horse. I've played her in a few matches now and she just is so quick and so fast and so compact. She's a wonderful little horse. And she actually has a unique story. And when I rescued her for $400, Joshua, same trainer, went and picked her up and put 60 days on her once she was mature enough because I got her when she was very young. So she stayed with him for a few months first. She was only about two. And he fell in love with her and said, can I keep her? I'll trade you free training for the next couple of rescues you bring in if I can keep Sunny. I said, okay, fine. I only paid $400 for her. So it sounded like a fair trade. And then a few months later, you know, after he had started her and started training her, he sent me videos of her working and gosh, she was just a little handy machine. Uh, She was just amazing. Now, do you you think there's going to be more horses in your future? Yeah, I think so. Yeah. (laughs) (laughs) I'm going to average two, three, four a year. No, if there is a message to those who are listening of what they could do to help this cause what would you say that they could do? Is it something where, you know, go and, you know, make an investment in these horses? Can they donate somewhere? What can we do to kind of amplify the cause? You know, I think first and foremost, something that's really important and so easy and costs nothing is checking in on your old horses. What happened to that horse you owned when you were 10? Where is he now? You know, your daughter's first pony, where did she go? What's her situation? Is she okay? Does she need some kind of surgery that you can help with? Checking in on those horses that got you started, checking in on the horses you sold two, four, six, eight, ten 10 years ago, finding out where they are and making sure they're in good hands. I think that 
is first and foremost so important. And a lot of people overlook that. It's like out of sight, out of mind mentality. And you just Mm -hmm. can't have that because you don't know where they're going to end up. And unfortunately for some, it might be too late, but you could, there's a small chance that maybe you could save a horse from being in a, a bad situation. Speaking of that topic, I don't know if it was you or someone, didn't they post something looking for one of Sonny Hale's horses and tracking one of them down? That was me. We were trying to find one of Sonny's horses and we did find him. He was with, um, um, what's his name? That country singer star, Travis, what's his name? Randy Travis. Yeah. Okay. Wow. Well, Hey, he's in good hands. <laughs> he's in good. He sadly, he passed away, but she had given him to Randy Travis and he lived out his days on his private farm in North central Texas. But it was quite, it was quite a wild goose chase. Thank God that story ended well. My gosh, when I was reading kind of through everything, everyone didn't know what to do. No one could find them. And that I know, I know. And it sounded like it was hitting the dead end road. And that's really, really great to hear. It really is. And then of all people to land with, you know, Randy Travis. So that's. I know. I first inquired because he was this beautiful little tiny compact stallion from really nice breeding lines. And so I was thinking about, oh, maybe I could use him as a stud on one of my mares. I really like him. He's small, compact, and he's one of Sonny's horses. Like, how cool is that? And when I started asking about him, everyone was like, yeah, he went to so-and-so. No, he didn't go to me. He went to so-and-so. No, he didn't go to me. And I was like, hold on. Whoa. <laughs> and so I asked her friends and family and her friends and families were the ones who were kind of like, hey, if you wouldn't mind, could you keep this up and try to figure out where the heck he's gone? Because this was a really special horse for her. So yeah. we, we kind of tracked it down. And long story short, he, he ended up going to Randy Travis's private farm in Texas. That's a great end. Great end to that story. Great end. Uh, you had my heart racing over there. I'm just like, oh my gosh, going to say something bad. Something bad happened. <laughs> no. My gosh, it sounds like you won the lottery though. Exactly. So you continue to play women's polo. You play all over the country. You play all over the world. I saw that you played in India recently in Manipur. Yes, yeah, amazing experience. So are you just continuing to go to tournaments? I know you come back here to Chicago anytime that they're hosting a tournament here. I know you play in the Rose Cup. What's going on with you right now? What does your polo future look like? COVID kind of threw a little a little wrench in our plans. <laughs> um, as you can imagine, this year, the 2020 Women's US Open was postponed. So we had made it to the semifinals and everything kind of got shut down. But we will be finishing the 2020 Women's US Open off in 2021 and entering a team for 2021 with the support of Hawaii Polo Life, who has been an incredibly valuable and generous sponsor for me and Chris and Lahua and the team at Hawaii Polo Life have been really wonderful and accommodating and really have given me the opportunity to play in a lot of these tournaments. So I'm forever grateful to them. So looking forward, I intend to play in Florida in February and March to finish off the 2020 Women's Open and to start the 2021. But this year, looking back, I didn't play as much as I would have liked to, but I did compete in the Denver Women's Tournament here in Denver at the Denver Polo Club which Erica Gannam Carr puts on. And she always, as you can imagine, does a fabulous event. She is just mm-hmm. a wonderful woman and horseman. And then after that, I did uh, the Pacific Coast Open in California with Don mm-hmm. Jones. Her and I played on a team together, and that was a really special experience. And then I played in the Rose Cup in Illinois with Renata Sanfilippo and Samantha Falby and Lisa Sanfilippo and Shannon Norbash. They all kind of rotated positions, but a- another fabulous, fun event. So that was kind of my last year and looking forward to this year. I'll definitely be doing Florida a bit and Denver in the summer. What is your handicap now? I'm ladies four. You're a ladies four. What mm-hmm. do you hope to achieve? What is your goal? What handicap goal? I hope to be the best at whatever handicap I hold, you know? Okay. So I would hate to be a terrible five goaler. I would, mm-hmm. I would love to be a great four that everybody wants to play with. And at that point, if I go to five, I want to be the best five that everybody wants to play with. So mm-hmm. I just hope to be the best in my range. I, I just want to be valuable to my team at all times. If you make it to 10? <laughs> no. If I make it to 10? I don't know, but that would be pretty special. And at that point, you have to make a career out of polo. Not, right, not, exactly. You might have to give up your law degree or your law career. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I'd have to pay for it somehow. So I don't see that happening yeah. right now. <laughs> <laughs> what were the horses from during your early days in barrington splash was my first horse <laughs> he had like disney names in there i swear or or ones that you could probably be named after a cocktail nala nala is after the little you know the lion king 
for sure Disney names. Way better than Michael or Jack. Yeah, no, none of that. Or Dan. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so now, are you still modeling for US Polo ASSN? Yep, I've done a few shoots for them over the last couple of years, most recently in February of this year. And it's always great to partner with them. Uh, you know, mm-hmm. I work with the USP in a, a variety of capacities, whether it's sitting on the board or being on the Women's Handicap Committee and, and doing the photo shoots. So it's always fun kind of working within one organization in different capacities. So I hope that they still like me and, <laughs> you know, still use me in their shoots because it's always fun. Are you still hanging from Times Square or have you been replaced by Kareem? Gosh, the Times Square photo was up there for a few years. And just recently, from my understanding, this year, I want to say, it went up in 2016, maybe. And it was up for a couple of years. And then this year, they changed it to a digital board. So it, that photo is still on the digital reel. But, you know, I have to share the space now with a couple other photos of a couple of other people. Uh, I see. <laughs> I see. They digitized you. Oh. Yeah. You know, shoot. <laughs> oh, shoot. No, that's wonderful. That's wonderful. Well, hey, Pamela, I really, really appreciate you joining me today. Learned a lot, a lot about rescue ponies. I was kind of getting shook up on my end of the microphone here a little bit. It's like I, I at one point I'm like, how do I continue this conversation? Because this hurts to talk about in a yeah, way. It's tough. It's tough, but it's important. It is really important. You know, you have to face the facts in this that that type of industry and that type of situation. And Working with a lot of the players and the grooms, they have such an emotional connection to these horses. And looking back at my life, you know, I started riding when I was 10 years old. You know, I started riding when I was camp. So I had always an affinity and love for horses, even though like yourself, I'm not an avid equestrian. But these people that I work with on a day-to-day basis, you know, they think of these horses as another son or another daughter and, or, or just as much as they love their cat or dog. And they've had these for numerous years. They care for them. They love for them. And it's devastating to hear how they're treated beyond that, even without many people's knowledge. Right. It's really, really hard to hear about that. It really, really is. But I'm really, really glad Pamela that you kind of touched on that topic and really went down the path of educating people and how real this issue or problem that kind of needs to be solved here and how things can be done much more humanely, whether it be brought here within the United States or places like Canada and Mexico need to be far more responsible and accountable for what they're doing. It's it's difficult to hear, but I'm really, really happy that you shed so much light on the topic. And that was kind of the point of having you here today to discuss that. Sure. Well, I appreciate the opportunity too. And if there's just kind of a bullet point takeaway, you know, the thing that's cost nothing and is very easy is checking on your older horses. And if you want to do more, donate to a local rescue. And if you want to do more, adopt from a local rescue, you know, take horses off their hands. Mm-hmm. And I think those are kind of the three main things that you can really do at this point to make a big difference. There's another thing that where people could potentially open their barn or reserve some space in their barn for a rescue pony or two. Oh, definitely. There are rescues everywhere. And if you contact a local rescue and say, hey, I've got three stalls open at my barn. Could I take on three for you for the next six, eight months? I'm sure mm-hmm. that they would be forever grateful for that. And, you know, mm-hmm. they constantly need resources and space and hay is, is a big resource when it comes to horses. Well, Pamela, thank you again. I appreciate it. Thank you. Have a wonderful Thanksgiving if I don't talk to you until then. And yeah, we'll be in touch until next time. All right. Thank you, Danny. I appreciate it. All right. Thanks, Pamela. This podcast episode is presented by Global Polo TV. The world's premier destination for video on-demand polo content has arrived. Now you can watch the nation's best live and archived tournament matches and compelling behind-the-scenes content from anywhere, at any time, and on any digital device. Global Polo TV has over 9,000 subscribers, 200-plus hours of live broadcast games, and over 500 hours of produced content from weekly shows to in-depth features. Sign up today. All on-demand polo games and content are free. Want to watch official USPA games live? Then get your polo pass today by visiting globalpolo.com so as not to miss this year's high goal season and upcoming 2021 Gauntlet of Polo. Welcome to Global Polo TV. Now we have reached the part of the show where we address outside the board's issues affecting the sport of polo 
with the sharing of insights, ideas, and best practices towards solving everyday marketing, branding, and sponsorship problems, avoiding bad habits, or helping to navigate through new trends and how to best leverage those opportunities. Hey everyone. So for this episode, we are going to talk about and address an outside the boards issue that is greatly affecting all of our polo clubs, events, and businesses. And that is trying to navigate around this whole COVID-19 pandemic. You know, it's been seven months since we was at the start of the pandemic in the United States. And depending on the state, this may have significant or little impact on local businesses and the culture within your state county or city. Live sports and entertainment, for example, such as concerts and festivals have greatly been impacted and almost have ceased to exist in 2020 or have gotten very creative and have done things such as a driving concerts or done things online, many, many, many other things. Kudos to them for having to navigate around this, but it's also been hardly impact on these groups and polo falls in that category. So however, despite the shutdown, Polo has defied expectations and continues to operate and succeed. A number of polo clubs, especially during the summer months, have really saw the silver lining in this and have communicated with their civic leaders to get approval. So that's fantastic. Kudos to them. And some, however, have not, even overseas. Sometimes some areas are just far more strict than other countries or states, or there hasn't been appropriate communication from that event or club organizer as to why and how they differentiate themselves from, let's say, other team or contact sports or outdoor recreational activities. So for this episode, I'm just going to kind of briefly touch on the subject of how to educate and work with local government. Here up in Chicago, back in January, I want to say we started to put our plans together if this thing were to roll out into the United States and what that would look like. So even before the state of Illinois, for example, has started to issue its guidelines for specific industries, we were already looking at the CDC. So if there's one thing to take away from this, it's been incredibly proactive and really putting pencil to paper to outline your plans because at the end of the day, no one knows your business like you do. These civic leaders, representatives, attorneys, health officials, they don't know anything about polo. So they just look at this from an overarching and bucket everyone into a single industry or group. And therefore everyone kind of has to abide by that. But certain sports like polo, really stand out and they don't necessarily comply or conform to other sports or outdoor recreation activities. And it's really good to leverage those differences for Polo's benefit. You know, when we had worked with state officials within Illinois, you know, they don't have the bandwidth or research to outline operational guidelines for every industry. So Polo being the least of their worries, that's for sure. However, you know, that doesn't mean that, you know, your elected leaders don't care. They want businesses to survive and thrive after this is all over. So this is why many states have employed staff and even set up ways to communicate with relevant economic and health departments, answer questions and help businesses navigate through all the details that they outline and share with the general public. So as I mentioned before, many polo clubs throughout the country were able to influence and educate their state health officials and leaders and that polo stands apart from mainstream sports. And there's a lot of reasons why. So what are those reasons? You know, obviously it's our field. We operate on nine acres. That is 300 yards on either sideline. We are the biggest pitch in sports compared to a typical soccer field, lacrosse field, football field, and what have you, where people are far more compacted and funneled through a very smaller area. We also have the advantage of the sport itself and the number of players that are on a field are half of what is typically seen in football, soccer, and some of your mainstream sports. And last but not least, tailgating. Tailgating is a preferred way to view our match. And tailgating comes with a lot of benefits and a lot of easy control of how people view the match, enter a field, and confining people to their little vehicle or car and not have to exit 
for any reason except for, let's say, maybe go to the restrooms. And with tailgating, that means bringing your own food and beverage. So that's very, very easy. So it's to play off those features and conform your event or polo club to basically show your civic leaders that you can conform and you can mold in the guidelines and guidelines that are in within different industries and how it can conform to polo. But first, there's kind of three things that you have to do to really convince your civic leaders how to get polo greenlit. And that is connect. You know, you have to find the appropriate department, whether it be commerce or health departments. Sometimes you have to go through one before you get approved for the other. Establish a relationship with a point of contact. You know, in some cases, you might be assigned to an individual or group. Uncovering the process for seeking approval, if there is one. You know, and request directions for accessing public and non-public guidelines, documents, etc. to help you engineer your own plan. Once you have all that information and have gotten direction, it's time to review. So you have to review the state's operational and health guidelines in detail. When I say in detail, you're going over every single bullet point because when you have to develop your own plan, you pretty much have to have answers for all of them. You know, guidelines relevant to polo may include spectator seated events. It might include restaurants, recreational activities, team sports, etc. Up here in Illinois, when we had to put our plan together, we literally crossed between two or three different industry guidelines to put into our own. I think those two were outdoor spectator seated events and restaurants were the two bigger ones. And so, yeah, so that will help you develop your own plan. And when I say own plan, put pencil to paper. This is not a necessarily a simple letter with a few bullet points on it. It's very important to educate and show these civic leaders that you are taking this seriously and that you do have a well thought out plan as to execute. When we had put ours together up here in Illinois, I don't mean to brag, but it was incredibly thorough. I mean, when I say thorough, it was probably about 15 to 20 pages in length really going through every single bullet point and really educating those leaders and health officials that, you know, we, we've, we've covered every angle and every way we ought to look at this. And in fact, we're even safer than what other sports or facilities might be executing, ironically. And we communicated that to them, like, look, you know, you're, you're taking this from a, one perspective. We're showing you another perspective and we're actually able to eliminate a number of things in here because they're health concerns or we just can't control them. So put pencil to paper and have an answer slash solution for each of the state guidelines. Really think this through. The next process is educate. Once you have that done, send it on its way to those leaders. You know, they will take a look at it. They will skim through it. You know, they might have some brief answers back for you, but definitely is a time to educate. Again, they don't know anything about your sport. So it's very, very important that they get a good visual idea in terms of how you can execute. And sometimes it's going to be really, really hard to do that. You got to understand that some of these people have an already an existing idea of how you might compare to other sports. And a lot of that is probably false. So get ready to educate those leaders. The next thing is to execute. Once you get green lit to execute your events and the polo club and matches and what have you, whether with spectators or not, be prepared to execute that plan and put it into effect. And you should do your best to execute that plan as it is written. Don't cut any corners whatsoever. You have to remember, you know, who are the people you are catering towards. It's just not you that's observing yourself, but it's your spectators, it's your players. And in some cases, depending upon where you are, even when it comes to elected officials, you know, security, your local police department, your local fire and health departments and what have you. So you want to put that plan into execution. And the next thing is to evolve. Things are constantly changing on a week-by-week basis or monthly. So you want to evolve with these changes easier, whether that's either rolling back and being more strict when it comes to your guidelines and on site, or is that loosening up some some things, you know, getting more tailgate spots or having more events on site and players and so on and so forth. Bringing back the divot stomp allowing people to look at the horses and kind of move around more so than you would if it's a much more strict environment. So there's a process to go to, and I definitely encourage all of you to line a look at this in detail. So go to www.outsidetheboards.com, subscribe to our website to give you access to our COVID-19 best practices after seven months dealing with this pandemic. Uh, And you'll see another information in terms of 
how to execute other things or where should you invest, whether that be the spectator environment, social media, content development, how to engage your audience, your sponsor involvement, public relations, and not to make sure that you're slacking off in the off season. But again, hope you guys walked away with something important. For those of you who have not gotten to your season or are looking to prepare for their next season, definitely put pen to paper and start. I know you all have success with this. There is silver lining for polo compared to any other sport. So for those of you who had success, congratulations. That's fantastic. And yeah, good luck with your seasons, everyone. And if you have any questions, don't hesitate to contact outside the boards. If you need further help or answering questions or even developing your own plan to present to your local leaders. Thank you and uh, have a great day. Bye. That was a great episode. What is the one thing you learned from today's conversation? If this episode had an impact on you in some way, then I encourage you to visit and subscribe to our website at OutsideTheBoards.com for more episodes and interviews with incredible guests. Thanks for stopping by, my friends, and hope to see you on the polo field.